today we begin to dip our toes just a little bit into the vast ocean that is Matthew. I don't think I've ever worked on a sermon so long. It was two years ago that I intended uh, to start studying the book of Matthew, about a year and a half almost ago that I intended to start preaching Matthew, and then Ryan and I decided to have a conversation at Rose's one afternoon and talk about merging, and that made me think, maybe I should hold off on Matthew. I'll, you know, a year and a half, I could probably get myself to verse 4 of chapter 1, but then I'll have to start all over again. Let's just wait, and um, we'll see if Matthew has another, another chance later on, and sure enough, as the Lord would have it, here we are today. As we come to this vast ocean of a book, and it is, it's, it's a huge book, um, I think we'll find, much like at creation, after that initial ex nihilo act of God where he says that the waters were there and, and uh, the spirit is stirring over the waters and the earth is formless and void, well, the waters of Matthew may be to you like something that is formless and void, darkness hovering over the face of the deep. But it's my prayer that as we proceed, that the Spirit of God would, just as at creation, hover over these waters, the waters of this word, and bring forth light. Well, there's several things I'd like to do. There are many things I would like to do, but several we're going to do today. I, I have to remind myself at these moments, if I just preach this sermon and I die tomorrow, then that's okay. Um, or if I live a long time, I, I don't have to do everything right now. It's really hard for me not to want to do everything right now. Now, that's everything I know. And then there's all that other stuff that I, that I don't know yet, and I'm going to be growing and learning. And uh, I tell you, the one that has challenged the most, I think, and grows the most is the, is the teacher. I mean, they're the ones that learn firsthand you know, they have that front row seat, if you will. And, and um, so I know that uh, I'm going to know a lot more about Matthew in several years when we're done with Matthew. I think several years. I said, I, that wasn't a slip of the tongue. It'll, it'll probably take us time, especially this going back and forth thing. It's, uh, I've already determined that Ryan's going to preach five books of the Bible before I finish Matthew. So just kind of, you know, get, get comfy there maybe. Several things I want to do today. One is this. I want to unpack the title for the sermon that you find in the bulletin. It's kind of an odd title. You might think, what is, what is that? Matthew, an introduction, the witness of the new creation of Jesus, the Messiah. What is, what is this new creation of Jesus, the Messiah? Well, I want to also, with that, I want to unpack why I would refer to this book as the book of Genesis. So that's kind of number one. I want to deal with some title issues. Secondly, having unpacked that title and seeing it more clearly together, what is Matthew actually doing in the opening of his letter? Perhaps you've heard it described before that, uh, that if we want a theological view of the gospel, um, which gospel do we go to? We go to John. John is the theological gospel. John is the spiritual gospel. I've heard that kind of comment made many times. I think you're going to find that we don't get very far into the book of Matthew itself before we realize Matthew is a very theologically packed gospel. In fact, we're not going to get past verse 1, really, in a sense, even today. What is it that Matthew's doing how does he go about unpacking his theology? So we might say there's somewhat of a method to the madness of Matthew. Now, I'm not trying to say that Matthew's like a, like a mad teacher or a mad apostle, like he's gone crazy or whatever. But, but there is a method to what he's doing. He's, he's not just giving us just history. He is giving us history that is theologically infused and weighty and ultimately pointing us to Lord Jesus Christ in all of his glory. So there's a third thing. 
I want us to consider how Matthew lays out his material. And this will help us, I think, as we kind of move forward. We're kind of laying a map. How does Matthew unpack this theology? How does he present it to us in what kind of an order? So just like a map would help you on a trip, I think we'll lay out a little bit of a map for us as we uh, move into that third point. And finally, fourth, I want to make sense out of it. How do we... What's the... I think Alistair Begg was the one who made this comment about preaching. He said, um, so what? Okay, uh, what's, what's the point? What's the usefulness of the gospel of Matthew? Well, I think uh, the usefulness of the application of the gospel of Matthew is manifold. There are many things we could draw from it, so our thoughts will be very initial. But how does Matthew's work in particular, how does it serve the church? How does it serve the church? This is the first time, well, I guess a a few weeks ago, I, I preached on Psalm 3, but as I've been moving toward this particular study, I'm thinking, how will this be profitable for Christ's covenant Reformed Baptist Church? How will this help us as a congregation? And um, what will we take away from it? Well, those are four things I, I want to do, and I'm going <clears> to I'm going to kind of lay those out by way of four heads. So if you're if you're taking notes, let me just give you four quick heads that will maybe help you with those four kind of broadly introduced ideas. The announcement of Matthew, number one. The announcement of Matthew. And this is where we're going to kind of unpack the title and unpack this idea of this being a book of Genesis. What is he, what is he coming to talk about? What is he coming to proclaim? What is he, by taking up pen in hand, if you will, pen and parchment, what is it that he's trying to declare in a written form for the church? Secondly, the approach of Matthew. The approach of Matthew. This is where we talk about the method. Okay, what's his approach? How does he go about doing this, unpacking this broad theology? Thirdly, the arrangement of Matthew. This is where we're going to look at the structure of his book as a whole. And, um, and there, it's not going to be too complicated at this point. It's just going to be three main hooks to kind of hang some sections of Matthew on. And then finally, the applicability. Okay, so the announcement, the approach, the arrangement, and the applicability of Matthew. Let's think about the announcement of Matthew. What is it that Matthew is declaring in these uh, these opening words? For that, let me direct your attention simply to verse 1. The New American Standard that I'm reading out of says the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, this may be for some of you. Please don't raise your hand on this. This may be for some of you the first time you've read the first verse of Matthew because you've been under that delusion that genealogies should be skipped. All right? We are going to give a special time at the end of the sermon today for people to come forward and repent of skipping the genealogies, right? It is a grave sin to skip a genealogy. Don't skip a genealogy. If you buy a book, don't skip the preface. Don't think, I'm just going to get ahead. Look, if I start on chapter one, I'll just be like on page 27. It's a long preface. Don't skip prefaces in books, all right? Don't skip genealogies, and especially don't skip the genealogy of Jesus. What were you thinking? You can't do that. You can't skip Jesus' genealogy just because he has uncles or great uncles that are called Aminadab or Jehoshaphat or different things like that. What are those names, all right? Well, don't get lost in names, right? But all these names are people that in the lineage of the Messiah have been moving us from that time of expectation to the time of fulfillment. Don't, don't skip the genealogy, and especially don't forget the first verse of the genealogy, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Well, let me give you a little bit about this particular genealogy. Now, again, we're just looking in verse 1. If you had a Greek New Testament, you would open it up, and you would find that the verse begins with two words, biblos, Biblos Geneseo. Biblos Geneseo. Well, let's put a little softer uh, sound on that second word, the way we pronounce it. Uh, 
uh, in English, biblos geneseo. You hear something there? Biblos geneseo. The book of the genesis of Jesus. Isn't that fascinating? You can say a lot in just two words. Book, Genesis. Well, the way we have it translated for us in the New American Standard, it's the record uh, that I've translated book, Biblos, all right? Record or um, the history of, of the story of, all right? And it is a, a book about a genesis. It's a book about beginnings. This takes us back, indeed, to Genesis chapter 1, the title to the book of Genesis in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, is the Genesis, the book of Genesis. Well, it's the book of the Genesis. What, is, what does this mean? Right? Well, the translators here have the record of the genealogy of Jesus. Is Matthew chapter 1, strictly speaking, or simply speaking, just a story about a family tree. Is this Matthew going on to whatever Ancestry.com was at the time, and, 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 and Matthew's paid the $99 to find out the DNA of Jesus, and he comes from this tribe and that tribe or whatever, and, uh, and he's just kind of found the family line. A lot of times that's the way genealogies are read. They're just kind of read as, this is just history, and we all know what people do with history. Don't do that either. Shame on you. We'll have another confessional time for people who, who yawn at history. History's important, all right? So uh, is it just history? Is it just information? And I think, I think not. This is the record of the genealogy of Jesus. I want to take you to two passages in the Old Testament where we find this very verbiage used. Let's go back. To Genesis, and we'll start in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, we, we come to a, a, an interesting verse, and I say it's interesting because this kind of verse is going to be repeated numerous times, especially in the book of Genesis. Now, you remember Genesis chapter 1, the, the seven days of creation there, God resting on the seventh day, and now we come in Genesis chapter 2 with a focus on the creation of the man and the woman. I want you to look in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Or another way to translate that, these are the generations. This is the account of the heavens and the earth. Or we could say this is the record or the book of the genealogy of the heavens and the earth. The same opening phrase is used in Genesis 2-4 in the Greek, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The same words are used in Genesis 2-4 that are used in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, to point to Jesus. Look over in Matthew, or Genesis, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 5. That's translated a little more literally here. This is the book of the generations of Adam. Genesis 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. You can almost see it, uh, how it more closely resembles Matthew 1, 1, the book of the generations of Jesus. Now, this kind of phrasing of generations of kind of, uh, is, is used multiple times in the book of Genesis to kind of display a sense of movement through the text. You can look over, uh, if you will, in Genesis chapter 6. In verse 9, we'll just flip through a couple of passages. Genesis 6, verse 9. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Uh, if we jump ahead uh, to chapter 10, in verse 1. Now these are the records of the generations of Shem, Ham, and Jepheth, the sons of Noah. The sons were born to them after the flood. Uh, we can jump ahead again to Genesis chapter 11, verse 10. These are the records of the generations of Shem, and on and on, we find this kind of verbiage throughout uh, the uh, book of Genesis in particular. Now, what's striking about this is that if you were a Jewish 
individual receiving the Gospel of Matthew, and we'll talk more as we go about how Matthew is, is written by the Apostle Matthew. It's written to the early church, which is predominantly Jewish. And if you were reading Matthew chapter 1 and you heard that opening phrase, the book of the genealogy or the record of the genealogy or the book of Genesis, your mind would immediately go back to Genesis in particular, Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 5. Well, to kind of unpack this just a little bit, what is it that, that Matthew is, is trying to do? That phrasing in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, used in those two specific places about the generations of the heavens and the earth and the generations of Adam. The beginnings of the heaven and earth is a way of... of, of of Moses, as he records in the book of Genesis, a way of saying, this is the story of creation. And when I use the word story, please don't be thrown by that. I'm not talking about Cinderella. I'm not talking about some make-believe type thing. I had somebody years ago when I preached, and I often say story. When I'm talking about biblical narrative, when I'm talking about the, the histori- history of redemption, I often use the word story. And I do not mean in any way to denigrate the historical veracity and integrity and inspiration and inerrancy of the Word of God. It is all the Word of God. Genesis, in fact, is true history. I believe God made the world in six days. All right? So, you know, 24-hour days by that. I believe in a young earth, all those kinds of things, all right? Um, So I'm not that guy you're worried about when you hear the word story. Do I mean myth by story? No, I just mean it's the telling of the narrative of the history. And so when... Moses records this in Genesis chapter 2 for us. He's telling us about the story, the narrative history of the creation of the world. And Matthew picks up on that. And he's coming to tell us now about a new creation story. But it's not the story of the creation of the world. It's the story of the new creation work of the new covenant work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, the other time in Matthew or Genesis chapter 5 that Moses brings out this same kind of verbiage, it's, be, it's, it's important to the genealogy of Adam. What's Matthew trying to do? In the coming of Christ into the world, there is a new creation intersection that God comes into the world. Remember, it's going to say just a little bit later in Matthew chapter 1 that that when Jesus comes in the world, he is that anticipated Emmanuel. What What is that? God with us. And what does Jesus say at the end of Matthew 28? Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. In this new covenant kingdom, in this new covenant period, when Jesus comes into the world... All the way until that kingdom comes to an end, Jesus will be what? He'll be with us. And he's with us, not just as a new creation. He's with us as a new and greater Adam. He is what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 15 as the second Adam. He is the new creation. He is the new Adam. And what he is bringing into the world is the fullness of this new covenant. We often call it the covenant of grace. And he will establish a new relation with his people. This is just something of the announcement of Matthew. Let's talk about his approach. What is his approach? We're going to revisit that again in the weeks to come, but I just want to kind of lay it before you today. Oh, one more thing, or well, two more things. Go, go back, go back there to uh, um, Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. I, I didn't unpack this, and I wanted to. Um, this is, the book, of, this is the, the book of Genesis for the New Covenant period, right? And it is the record of the genealogy of Jesus. Well, I said one thing, then I said let's do two things. Now I'm going to say let's do three things, all right? It's, it's the record of the genealogy of Jesus. Who is Jesus? You think, oh, this is pretty basic. Oh, who is Jesus? In this verse, who is Jesus? Three things are said of Jesus. He is the Messiah. 
He is the son of David. He is the son of Abraham. Just kind of in a hurry. I see time just flying away. I don't want to get through the first point, and that's it. But he's the Messiah. He's the son of David. He is the son of Abraham. Think about Jesus as the Messiah. We often refer to Jesus as Jesus Christ, right? You understand that Christ is not Jesus' last name. Right outside Jesus' house. Well, he didn't have a house. He kind of, you know, wandered around many times. When he was growing up, all right? Uh, Jesus, if he did have a house, wouldn't have had a mailbox out in the front that would say Jesus Christ. You know, 101 Nazareth Road or something like that. No, he's not Jesus Christ as in that that's his last name. He is Jesus the Christ as in that is a title that is given to him. He is the Messiah of God. This is why we open up the service today with uh, a reading of Psalm 2, speaking of the anointed one, the anointed one of God, that, 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 that Hebrew terminology that stands in the background of this Greek word Christos, which he, as Christ, he is the anointed of God that has been set on that holy hill. Now this gets us to a next point. He's not only Jesus the Christ, he's Jesus the son of David. Psalm 2, who does God set on that holy hill? His king. And this is the, Psalm 2 takes us back into eternity, if you will. The decree of God, that he's decreed that his son would sit on his holy hill, be his anointed one, be his, his Messiah in that regard, and he would rule. But the phrasing in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, referring to him as the son of David, points us back to the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel chapter 7 and other places, where, where we see that David is promised that he will have a son. And what's the son of David going to be? He's going to be what David was, a king, right? He's going to rule. He's going to reign. And hence we read Psalm 72. Josh read that earlier. That, that, the, that the rule of the king was going to spread from sea to sea to the ends of the earth. And he would rule and he would reign. And here Matthew is saying the record this, in this new genesis, in this new beginning, in this new creation, Jesus as the Messiah is going to come, as the long-anticipated son of David, the hope of the Jews was to have the king back, was to have him establish his kingdom and his rule, and he would be the son of David in that sense. Matthew here is saying that the long-anticipated coming king, and there were some circles, especially in the first century, there were some circles of Jews that connected the idea of the son of David as king and the idea of Messiah and putting these two things together, that the Messiah was to be the son of David, was to be a king. And Matthew here is saying that in the coming of Jesus, that long-anticipated hope of the Jews is what? It's fulfilled, but there's more. Because he's not just the Messiah, the son of David, he is the son of Abraham. Now, it it would take us weeks to unpack the idea of the son of Abraham, but just in your mind for a moment, go back with me to Genesis chapter 12. Remember Genesis 12, God finds Abraham and brings him and sends him to Canaan. And in Abraham, God promises to Abraham that in you, all the nations of the world will be what? They'll be blessed. Well, this takes us back to Psalm 2 again. Remember Psalm 2? We read it just a little while ago. I've installed my king on my holy hill. And there's this exhortation that goes out to the kings of the world. And it says, kiss the son... Do homage to the Son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. And then it ends with this line, Blessed are all those who take refuge in you. Any, anywhere, anytime, who take refuge in the Son of God will be blessed. And this is the inheritance of the promise given to Abraham. Well, this is in small fashion the announcement that Matthew is making. Let's, let's move on. Number two, the approach of Matthew. How is he going to do this? Well, it's right here in the verse. You may not have seen it, but it's right here. Remember, this is the, the record of the genealogy of Jesus. Now, if we look ahead just a little bit uh, to Matthew chapter 1, verse 16, coming to the, 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 the culmination of the genealogy, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born. Jesus, this this one Jesus, is 
the son of Mary, now we know he's the son of God, but he is the son of Mary. This is pointing to his humanity, his human generation, if you will, of his human nature, his created nature. Now many would assume he was the son of Joseph, but we know by revelation uh, that Mary and Joseph had not come together as husband and wife, and what is born of Mary was of the Holy Spirit and Mary in some sense there. Don't ask me to explain all the, you know, ins and outs of that, I, I can't. But we know that Joseph was not his earthly father. He was, though, by way of marriage, his legal father. Matthew says back in Genesis, or Genesis I keep saying Genesis, Matthew 1.1, I'm just going to start calling this book of Genesis. Matthew says in Matthew 1.1, this is the book of the Genesis of Jesus, the Messiah. Now let me, just, let me interject a word or a phrase that may be helped there. This is the record of the genealogy of Jesus, hear this, who is the Messiah. Jesus, Matthew's saying in Matthew 1.1, Jesus is the Messiah. Now he's going to unpack this, unfold this, demonstrate this, prove this for the rest of the book. And what we see here, I think, is we might say that Matthew is taking a page out of Paul's playbook. Remember Paul, the Apostle Paul? Look over with me, if you would, in the book of Acts. And let's start in Acts 13. Acts 13 is the um, kind of the beginnings of the first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. He's sent out from the church in Antioch with Barnabas. We find him in Acts chapter 13, verse 4. And it says this, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews, and they also had John as their helper. This is John Mark, who uh, later will leave them. Um, Paul's first move on his journeys when he came to a city was to look for a synagogue. There are some times where he doesn't find a synagogue, like in Philippi. He had to have ten Jewish men, basically ten families in a town, to establish a synagogue. If you had less than that, you might have to go to, to a neighbor town. But Paul regularly went to the synagogue once he got to a city, if there was one. We find this over and over. We find it in 13.5. Let me just give you a list of a few verses. We find it in 13.5. He goes to Salamis. In 13.14, he goes to Pisidian Antioch. In 14.1, he goes to Iconium. 17.1, Thessalonica. 17.10, Berea. 18.4, he goes to Corinth. 18.19, he's in Ephesus. 19.8, 19.8, he's in Ephesus as well. Now, we're going to jump ahead to 17. I'd, I'd love to take time to go through all of those, but we can't. I'm trying to be disciplined. It's really hard to be disciplined. I'm not very disciplined at these kinds of things. Um, <clears throat> 17, four. I keep thinking one day I'm going to get older. I'm going to preach long enough, and I'll figure it out. I don't think it's going to happen. 17.4. Now, let's just start with one. And when they had traveled, uh, this is probably, we're in 17, this is probably our second missionary journey, I'm thinking. Um, sometimes I get them mixed up. Yeah, yeah, 13.14. This is the second journey. 17.1. When they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, notice that phrase, according to Paul's custom. This is what he did, all right, regularly when he goes to these cities. According to Paul's custom, he went to them, that is the Jews, and for three Sabbaths, three consecutive Sabbaths most likely, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, 
This is Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you, or this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. This Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. I think verse 3 is kind of a, uh, it's kind of a summary term. Right? It's kind of a, I mean, in my Bible, what I did is I just put quotes around it. Quote, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. End quote. And that's not the whole of the sermon. If you want to get an example of Paul's preaching and how he did this, how he demonstrated that Jesus was the Christ, you can go back to Acts 13, just show it to you really quickly. Uh, we're not going to go into any detail here. Uh, but when Paul comes to Pisidian Antioch in Acts 13, verse 14, on the Sabbath day, he goes into the synagogue and sits down. And the officials look at him and say, in verse 15, Brethren, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, say it. And Paul stands up, and for the next, I don't know, 30 verses or so, Paul just expounds on Jesus being the Christ, on Jesus being the Messiah. And what's interesting about how is how he does it, and it's helpful for us. How does Paul prove or demonstrate that Jesus is the Messiah? He does it by way of expounding the Old Testament. Some of you men are participating in uh, our men's book study right now where we are reading a book by Irenaeus uh, entitled The Demonstration of Apostolic Preaching. And Irenaeus speaks in this book about how this was the regular practice of all the apostles. When they preached Christ, they would preach him from the Old Testament to demonstrate that he, in fact, was the anticipated Messiah. Now go back, if you would, to Acts 17. He's reasoning with them, in verse 2, from the what? From the Scriptures. Now, Paul doesn't have an app. It's not like, you know, got all the books of the Bible in there. Paul doesn't even have a Bible like yours that's got all 66 books of the Bible. When Paul's going to reason from the Scripture, remember where he is. He's in a Jewish synagogue. He is not probably whipping out, you know, his letters to the Colossians or Peter's letter to the dispersed ones, all right? He is probably making use like the Lord Jesus himself. Remember Jesus in Luke chapter 4? Jesus goes to the synagogue in Capernaum, and he stands up, and he unrolls the scroll. He finds the place, he reads, and then says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Here's Paul going to the synagogue, probably opens up the scroll, and begins to reason from different places in the Old Testament text, proving that Jesus is the Christ. He explains and gives evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This would be very much in keeping with what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, I think around verses 3 and 4, where it says that I delivered to you as of first importance that Christ died and was buried. He died according to the Scriptures and was buried, and he was raised according to the Scriptures and that he appeared. The, the two basic points of Paul's preaching were the death and resurrection of Jesus both of which he reasoned from the scriptures to show who Jesus was. Now again, he comes on here and says uh, that this Jesus, and this is what I want you to focus in on, verse 3, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. Now, here's the question. How, how, was, how was Paul proving, giving evidence of, demonstrating that Jesus was the Christ. Nobody was arguing that Jesus was a real person. I mean, we can find, you know, Josephus, uh, the most famous historian probably in the first century there, a Jewish man, surely and clearly claims that Jesus was a man. There are Roman historians that write that Jesus was a person, a group of people that followed this man, uh, Christus or Christ. So it's, it's clear that Jesus is a person. When you, when you meet people today, and maybe you are one, I hope not, You'll meet people, though, that will say, oh, Jesus is just a myth, just a legend. There never really was a person. There's more historical evidence, friend, for the fact that Jesus Christ lived in this world than you can possibly imagine. We do not lack historical verification for the person of this man named Jesus. But how do we 
prove or how do we demonstrate that this Jesus, this historical man, in fact, is the glorious Messiah, the Christ? Paul says he reasons from what? He reasons from the Scripture. We had a great lesson on the light of nature today in Sunday school. I don't go out and argue with people by virtue of the light of nature that Jesus is the Messiah. Or am I going to find stuff like that? I can argue for things like that from you know, shared moral consensus within the history of the world. I can argue from that just talking to people about things that we seem to know, the difference in right and wrong and things like that. I can't argue that Jesus is the Christ. I can't prove that. Paul doesn't do that. Paul argues from the Scripture, the Old Testament Scripture. You hear that? The Old Testament text that Jesus is the Christ. Why do I mention this? Why do I mention this? Because go back to Matthew 1.1, or if you prefer, the book of Genesis in the New Testament. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. Son of David, the son of Abraham. All throughout Matthew's gospel, he is going to be reasoning, giving evidence, giving demonstration of the fact that Jesus, in fact, is this long-anticipated Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. He's going to do this in a very particular way. He's going to do this by showing that the events that happen in the life of Jesus are indeed the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Let me just give you a for instance. I'll give you a couple of these, all right? Um, Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. This is when um, the Lord is trying to comfort Joseph, who's a little apprehensive now that he's found that his wife is going to have a baby, and she's not even his wife yet. Um, This seems a little um, off, and... um, Joseph says, or God says to Joseph here, in a dream, do not be afraid. Verse 20, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, verse 22, now all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And then he quotes Isaiah 7, 14. Or let's go over to... Matthew chapter 2, in verse 15, um, they have tucked away in Egypt um, because they're fleeing Herod. Remember, Herod's going to kill all the, all the boys two years and, and lower, and so they flee to Egypt. Jesus is probably like a toddler at this point or whatever. Um, and it says in verse 14, so Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. And that's a quote from Hosea 11.1. And you might ask the question, did Hosea, when he wrote Hosea 11.1, did he know he was writing about Jesus fleeing Herod and fleeing down to Egypt and then coming out of Egypt, going back to Nazareth? Did Hosea understand all that? I venture to say no. But Hosea, hear this, is not the ultimate author of Hosea. God is the ultimate author of Hosea. So let me ask another question. Did God know when he had Hosea write Hosea 11.1 that he was going to use this text one day to demonstrate the fact that Jesus was delivered from Egypt and saved from Herod? Answer? Help me. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Because we believe in the divine authorship of the word of God. And so does Matthew. And that's why he's using text after text after text to show us that Jesus, in fact, is this one in whom the Old Testament anticipation is fulfilled. It happens over and over again throughout the book of Matthew. We'll come across these texts. Uh, This is a, a particular phrase that Matthew is really big on. This was to fulfill what? And sometimes we have fulfillment, um, then that exact language is not necessarily used. Now, that gives us a little bit of, uh, of, of Matthew's uh, announcement, the substance of what he's trying to bring to us, and his approach. He's going to, he's going to take uh, a, we could say, a Pauline-type approach where, where he goes and he 
demonstrates from the scripture that Jesus is the Christ. And I might add just a footnote, we'll say more about this in the weeks to come, that it's, there's a question as to whether or not, I, I said Matthew might be taking a, a page from Paul's playbook. In other words, Matthew's doing kind of what Paul did. It's highly possible that it was Paul taking a page out of Matthew's playbook. Matthew probably wrote his gospel within about 10 to 15 years of the resurrection of Jesus. Right around the time somewhere in there, Paul gets saved, goes off into Arabia, grows and learns, and then comes back for his first missionary journey. It's highly likely that when Paul went on his first missionary journey, just kind of tuck this away, and we'll, we'll come back to it down the road, that he may very well have had a copy of the Gospel of Matthew with him to read and to study. And he probably learned from Matthew how to do this effective demonstration amongst the Gentile nation. Now, there's a lot behind that, and I'm just kind of throwing that out there. Um, but there's not enough time necessarily right now to effectively demonstrate that. But I think that's what's happening here. I think Paul gets this from Matthew. Well, as Matthew goes to write this, uh, this narrative down of how this happens, and, and you know, Matthew, got Matthew, got Mark, got Luke, got John, and they're all distinct. They all have different nuances, different points of emphases, and we get all four of these Gospels, or what the early church referred to as the fourfold Gospel. Um, Matthew is very unique, all right? Now, now I say very unique. There are a lot of similarities between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, right? Um, you've probably heard before they're called the synoptic gospels because they see things similarly or like the same. But when you really lay them out side by side, there, there are distinctions. There are differences. And uh, there are not contradictions, but there are differences. So how does Matthew go about this? Well, there are lots of different possible approaches to Matthew uh, and his arrangement. I just I want to go ahead and cut to the chase and give you mine, and maybe we'll come back later on and mention some other ones. I think what Matthew does is he breaks up his narrative, his telling of the story of Christ in three different sections, all right? And they're all broken up, those three sections are broken up by a phrase that, 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 that repeats itself at least twice in his gospel. So, Phase one, I would say, is from Matthew 1.1 to Matthew 4.16. Matthew 1.1 to Matthew 4.16. This is, uh, if, you, if you want Matthew to have a prologue, um, I don't think there's really a prologue, but this is kind of like the uh, introductory matter about uh, the, the person of Jesus. Who is this one known as Jesus, this son of David, this son of Abraham, this Messiah. Who is he? And included here is his genealogy, which is, yes, historical, but it's not um, ultimately just historical. It's, it's very theologically laden. Uh, we're told about his, uh, his birth. Then we're told about his infancy, when the Magi come uh, to visit him. We'll study this more later as well. Jesus is probably like about a year, a year and a half old by the time the Magi come. Uh, we read in Luke about the shepherds going to the, you know, the manger and that kind of a story. Uh, this is not that. Uh, Matthew chapter 2 is later. They're not in a manger. It's not no room for them in the end. They're in a house in Matthew chapter 2, and he's, he's a little older by this point. Um, <clears throat> then we get the uh, story of the, the flight to Egypt the return. He goes up to Nazareth, and he grows um, in uh, favor with God and men. He's, uh, he's learning. Uh, we also have during this time the, uh, the public appearance of John the Baptist and the public appearance of Jesus at his baptism, which one of the other Gospels tells us is when he's about 30 years old. So that's kind of what's going on in these opening four chapters, this first phase regarding the person of Jesus. And it's broken up by a statement that's made in Matthew 4.17. Just look there for a moment. Matthew 4.17, it says this, From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
Notice the phrase, from that time. This phrase occurs one other time in the Gospel of Matthew, and it's over in chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. Look over there with me for a moment. Matthew 16, in verse 21. So what this is going to do is this is going to make Matthew 4.17 all the way through Matthew 16.20. Matthew 4.17 to Matthew 16.20, a second phase of Matthew's presentation of Jesus. And if the first phase is kind of under the heading, the person of Christ, or the person of the Messiah, or the person of Jesus, this second phase could be listed under the title, the proclamation of the Messiah, or the proclamation of Jesus, the Messiah. And in, in those chapters, we have things like the Sermon on the Mount, we have the choosing of the Twelve, we have the kingdom parables, and Jesus is going out, his disciples are going out, they're preaching, and teaching, trying to point the Jews to Christ. Now, in Matthew 16, verse 21, we have again this little phrase. From that time, Jesus began to show. From that time. It's the only other time, other than Matthew 4, 21, that this phrase, from that time, is is mentioned. And it seems that Matthew is using this as kind of a, a movement break. Because something really decisive happens uh, as we get... Matthew 16, 21, and following. And here we move from the person of Christ and the proclamation of Christ to what I'll just call here the passion of Christ. Now, we don't actually get to the passion of Christ, the passion of Christ, his his crucifixion. We don't get to the actual passion uh, for several chapters, maybe almost eight chapters, eight or nine chapters, Matthew 26 or so, uh, the 27, the crucifixion, all right? 27 is the crucifixion, so it's, It's like, I don't know, 16 to 27, 11, 12 chapters. It's quite a while. But notice Matthew 16, 21. Look there with me for a moment. It says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. From that time, there is a turn in the narrative that we might even say that the volume is turned up at this particular point. If you were watching this as like a, like a movie, no, I'm not a big fan of movies or the Gospels, that's not the point, just using this as an illustration. Um, <clears throat> don't like movies about Jesus. But if you were watching the movie, the music would shift right here. Maybe it would get a little eerie, maybe it would get a little somber, maybe the volume would increase just a little bit, right? Because it's from this time that Jesus begins to demonstrate to his disciples, I've got to go where? I've got to go to Jerusalem. I've got to be betrayed. I've got to be crucified. And I've got to be raised. Notice in chapter 17, verse 22. This happens again. And while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and, they will, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. They begin to think about this a little bit more. Let's jump ahead. Jump ahead to chapter 20. Chapter 20, verse 17. If your fingers are tired... Exercise them or switch fingers because we have a few more verses. Chapter 20, verse 17, as Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves, this is the apostles, and on the way he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and he will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him, and on the third day he will be raised up. Sound familiar? It's the same thing he said back in 1621, same thing he said back in 1722. He says it again here in 2017. Jump ahead. One more place. This comes out, chapter 26. <clears throat> chapter 26. So we can probably almost like use these statements as ways to break up this final section, if you will on the passion of Christ, and things are getting more intense. Chapter 26, verse 2, 
And you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is going to be handed over for crucifixion. That's very abbreviated here, right? Um, and this is just literally like one chapter away from his betrayal and his crucifixion in chapter 27. These seem to me, chapter 4, verse 21, chapter 16, verse 21, seem to me the points where the narrative breaks. Now, a very interesting thing happens if you go back to chapter 16, right before we come to 1621, that, that third major break, the Gospel of Matthew reaches what I would call, in a sense, is like an apex. It's like a climax. Um, remember the disciples? Um, they're not always fully understanding who Jesus is. Um, you might think of the time that Jesus is walking on the water and he gets in the boat and they, they, they fall down they, they begin to worship him. There are other times, though, where Jesus is, uh, you know, they're on the, on the sea, on the lake, the winds are blowing, kind of like they were at our house a couple nights ago. And, uh, and they're terrified of the storm, probably, and then they see Jesus. That terrifies them all the more. Remember Jesus, what does he say? What does he say to the wind? Jesus, save us, we're about to die. And Jesus looks at the wind and the waves and says what? Peace, be still. And it's like instantaneously, it stops. And they ask a question. Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? They don't fully understand. But in Matthew chapter 16, in verse 13, Jesus comes into the district of Caesarea Philippi, and he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Now, earlier he said, who do people say the Son of Man is? And now he says, who do you say that I am? Son of Man and Jesus same. Actually, Son of Man is the, the most frequent way that Jesus designates himself over and over again. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the what? You're the Christ. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This is a real climax point for the disciples. They have come to confess openly and with understanding that Jesus is the Christ. Jump down a couple verses. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he, the Christ, the Messiah, must go to Jerusalem, suffer, be killed, and be raised. This is a real turn. And all the Gospels have these kinds of things connected, this realization of the apostles, about who Jesus is, and now the intensity begins to turn up about moving toward Jerusalem. This is uh, a very clear turning point in Matthew's narrative. So those are the three basic uh, sections, the idea of the person of Christ, the proclamation of Christ, and the passion of Christ. That's how he's going to kind of begin to move through the story. Well, in the time we have left, let's take all of this and let's see if we can bring some sense of application or some sense of use for Matthew. Now, we're going to be, as already alluded, we're going to be in Matthew uh, a long time, right? So I'm trying to pace myself and tell myself I don't have to do it all today, but I, I, I do want us to have some sense of clarity about where we're, where we're moving. And these three points of application are not, they're not sermon-specific in the sense that next week we'll have three other points of application. You might say that these three points of application I want to give you here today are really just for the whole book, right? Uh, I'm sure we'll make other points of application as we go. Uh, the, first, the first thing I would say about the usefulness of the book of Matthew is in regard to the exaltation of Christ. Now, for you and I, what this means is that Matthew is a book 
that exalts the Lord Jesus Christ in such a way that it should move the heart to worship. Um, one thing I always try to, to, to pray about for myself as I'm studying, um, Ryan, I'm sure, experiences this. Uh, several of you have preached in here before. It's very easy in preaching to become very academic. And I don't just mean the delivery of preaching. I mean the actual preparation for preaching. It's just academic. Uh, you're studying commentaries. You're translating passages out of the Bible. You're reading church history. You're thinking about theology. You're, you're learning all these different things. And it's like, you know, your head is just like swelling with information. And if you like that kind of thing, then you're, you're like excited. You're like almost giddy at times, you know. You can sit in the office and I can like yell, you know, because I've found like a eureka moment or whatever. And, you know, somebody might run in my office, what's wrong with you? Nothing's wrong. I just encountered a really amazing statement. And then I tell them, I tell my family what I just found. And they're like, man, dad needs help. He needs like counseling. Uh, because some things just really can excite you as you're studying. But, but my study, yes, is, is for my personal growth and for my personal edification. But ultimately speaking, the reason that God has given us this book is that we might come to know him. What does Paul say? Things like in Philippians chapter 3, I want to what? I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering be conformed to the likeness of his death that somehow I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. I, I want to live forever and I want to live forever with him and I want to know him. I want to be with those guys on that boat when Jesus says, peace be still. And I want to sit there with my jaw on the ground and I want to go, who is this Jesus. The gospel of Matthew is intended to exalt in your heart, in your eyes, in your affections, the glories of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Messiah, the son of David, the king over all things, the son of Abraham, the one that brings blessing to the world. That's why we study the Bible. It's why we study the book of Matthew. It's why we have it before our eyes. I, I think it's really fascinating to think that, that at the end of the book of Matthew, it says in Matthew 28, they, they all come there to the, to the, to the, great, the great Commission, we call it. Uh, they come there to the Mount where Jesus uh, um, is going to speak with them in Galilee. The 11 disciples, they come to Galilee, the mountain that Jesus designated. And when they saw him, they what? They worshiped him, though some were doubtful. That should also be a comfort to you. We can often become doubtful, can't we? We can often become weak. And we, can, we can look down on good old doubting Thomas, but we're often like him, aren't we? Aren't you glad Thomas is in the Bible? Jesus just didn't say, well, forget Thomas. We'll get two more guys. Because in Acts chapter, uh, Acts chapter 2 or Acts chapter 1, there are two other guys that were put forth. Uh, to be apostles after Judas. We'll just get rid of Thomas too. Jesus doesn't get rid of Thomas. Jesus looks at Thomas, comes to Thomas, says, put your hand here, put, see, see, my, see my wound, see my side. Yes, he rebukes Thomas, but he still welcomes Thomas. They worshiped him. And this happens throughout the book of Matthew. This is, this is uh, probably the most fundamental thing, I think. I just don't have time to give it uh, the attention it probably deserves. We'll come, back, we'll come back to it over and over again. I'm praying that as we study together the book of Matthew, that your heart will grow in love for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, your king, and the one who has brought you blessing forevermore. Secondly, there's an application here for the church, not just in regard to her worship, but in regard to her evangelism and her missions. Her evangelism and missions, and I'm kind of using evangelism slash missions, kind of, you know, one, one broad category of, of needing to grow in our heart for the lost. Um, right from the very beginning, looking at Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, 
Matthew presents Jesus as the son of Abraham. He is the one in whom all the anticipated promises given to Abraham are fulfilled. In your seed, that's Christ, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Make that connection there. God's going to give to Abraham a child. It's not just Isaac. It's not just Jacob. <coughs> it's ultimately Jesus. You do, you have, if you haven't noted yet, note in your mind that after, Je- after Matthew chapter 1, I'll say it again, Genesis. After Matthew chapter 1, there are no more genealogies in the Bible. No more. Now, that should be shocking to you if you know anything about the genealogies unless you're one of those that skipped those genealogies. That might not be. Maybe that's why you're not getting the shock. Remember, altar call, repentance from geneal- for genealogy skippers. <clears throat> you don't have to come. Just repent where you are. Genealogies are all over the Old Testament. There's even a book in the Bible called Numbers. And you're like, oh, I just died. A whole book. Well, I can read the Bible fast this year. I can just skip an entire book. And then the one right beside it, it's just about, you know, nasty diseases and stuff in the Old Testament. I'm going to skip that. Do I go from Genesis to, you know, Deuteronomy maybe and just, just skip a whole lot of, no, no, don't skip numbers. Numbers matter to God. There's a sense in which you're a number. God knows you. God knows all his kids. He's numbered them all. He knows them all by what? By name. Be happy when you see a genealogy in the Bible. It reminds you that God cares about people. He loves people. And he's come to save people. The fact that God has come to save people ought to fuel the church's desire to see people saved. Interesting, in Matthew chapter 10, we read this little phrase, and I've got to be quick here. I don't want to be preaching while Ryan comes up to do the Lord's Supper, so we're like doing them together. But in Matthew chapter 10, after he's chosen the 12 apostles, he says, these 12 he sent out in 10.5, these 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them, do not go in the way of the Gentiles. Do not enter any of the cities of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. What? Seriously? Go only to the Jews? That just sounds wrong. I can't go to the Gentiles. I can't go to the Samaritans. I can only go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Keep in mind, now there's a lot in there we won't, we'll get into later, but keep in mind, in a book like that, in a book that contains statements like this, only go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, are also texts where pagan Gentile kings from far eastern lands make their way to Jerusalem or to Bethlehem, there that area, to find he who has been born what? King of the Jews. Keep in mind that in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 5, blessed are those by inheriting the earth, and it's no longer just the land of Israel that is given. It's no longer that you get to be an inheritor of the earth just because you're a Jew. In the new covenant, you get to be one that inherits the earth because of your relationship to Jesus. It's not your ethnicity. It's your spiritual DNA, your spiritual birthright. Keep in mind that in the book that says you can only go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, we find a centurion that is included in the kingdom now, and Jesus says things like this. There's coming a day in this glorious kingdom where men are going to come from the east and from the west and dine at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but the sons of the kingdom, the Jews, are going to be what? Cast out. Keep in mind, in a book that says, go only to the lost sheep of Israel, we have a picture of the kingdom and kingdom preaching in Matthew 13 where the sower goes out to sow and he just scatters. He just scatters seed. You don't walk out there with your seed in your hand and go, are you a Jew? Okay, you're a Jew. You have like a birth certificate. Okay, good. Well, here's some seed for you. No, we don't go to someone and just and find their ethnicity out. We don't say... Are you, are you Jewish? Are you Gentile? Are you rich? Are you poor? Are you black? Are you white? Are you male? Are you female? Are you barbarian, skidian, slave, or free? No, we do what? We just open up our hand with a gospel seed and throw. And let God bring the harvest. 
in a book where the disciples are sent in chapter 10, only the lost sheep of the house of Israel has a, has a text in Matthew chapter 21 where Jesus says the kingdom is one day going to be taken away from you and given to a nation producing its fruit. And that nation is the predominantly Gentile church. And in a book that tells the disciples only to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, Jesus says this in the very final phrase of the text. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you, what? To the very end of the age. The messianic kingdom eventually progresses past just this exclusive Judaism into encompassing all the nations of the world. That should fuel and inform the church's missions and evangelism. One final thing. Not only should the book of Matthew encourage us in our worship and our evangelism and missions, it should, it should, it should instruct us in our own teaching, in our own pressing of all the commandments of Christ upon all those who are his, what? His disciples. Matthew has so much to say about the place of the law in the life of the believer. And if you're here today and you think somehow that as a Christian man or woman that you have no accountability to the law of God, you have not read the book of Matthew. You have not read the gospel of Matthew. You might stop in Matthew chapter 5 and say, you know, Jesus came to fulfill the law. I'm done with the law. The law with me can have nothing whatsoever to do. And you forget that the very last words of Jesus in Matthew 28 is that all who are disciples, you who are here today, who are disciples of Jesus Christ, are obligated to keep all the commands of Christ. You are Christ's disciple. You are his follower. This is to fuel not just our worship and our evangelism. It's to fuel our obedience. It's to fuel our pursuit of holiness. Friends, if you're here today and you do not know this Jesus, this Jesus who is the Messiah, this Jesus who is the son of David, this Jesus who is the rightful king of all the nations, this Jesus who is the son of Abraham, who brings the blessings of God to you, I pray. I pray you'll call upon him today. I pray that you'll come back next week. I pray that you'll come back in the following weeks and and take this journey through this book where we come to see Jesus, the promised Messiah of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. And we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask God that you would strengthen our worship Oh, God, may we exalt and exult in Christ alone, that you would grow us in our heart and our affection for the nations of the world, that they would come to see this Jesus as well, that we would take very seriously Christ's command to go and make disciples of all nations, to baptize them, to teach them, and take great comfort in the fact that Jesus is with us to the end of the age. And God, may we be serious, a serious people about adherence to all the commands of Christ, that we might be a holy people that might reflect his glory and his beauty for all to see. May indeed, as Matthew will say, we'll find later, let our light so shine before men that they might see our good deeds and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Have mercy on us, Lord, as we continue in our worship, as we come to the table. Help us to see even here the glories of our Savior. In his name we pray.